This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode one, The Saxon and the Viking. I hope you enjoy the show. It must have been jarring to hear the news, so close to the time of celebration of peace between the various English kingdoms and the Normans, that a contingent of Viking raiders were menacing the southern coastline near Kent. Having heard of the complete raising of the village of Folkestone, an experienced king in his own right, Ethelred, was probably hesitant at first to respond. Despite the unfortunate nickname, a name that wouldn't come until over a century after his death due to a somewhat comical error in translation. Ethelred the Unready would prove himself to be a decisive ruler during this time, for better or for worse. King Ethelred had been king for over 15 years when these Danish Vikings threatened his kingdom this time, and there's no doubt that as he lay in bed upon hearing the reports, he probably thought of his great-great-grandfather Alfred the Great, arguably the greatest Saxon king in England's long history to this point one dating back to the misty days of the semi-mythical King Arthur, about 500 years earlier. Alfred outwitted his Viking attackers and shifted the power from Viking strongholds across the North Sea to Saxon power in the 7th century. And though the Northmen continued to raid in waves throughout the next few centuries, England increasingly fell under the control of four main groups. The Angles and Alfred Saxons who emigrated from the northern Germanic forests the brutally territorial Welsh, and the mystical Picts from modern-day Scotland. Though a myriad of kingdoms and clans existed and punched holes in the armors of these larger groups, they would all have their day and then eventually fall under the influence of their ruling Saxon, Angle, Welsh, or Pict hegemony. The string of succession, the successes and the failures alike, wound their way to Ethelred, here in 991 the king of the Anglo-Saxon people in England and the island's largest kingdom. The pressure he must have felt to once again take on the Viking horde must have been almost unbearable. Or, as his legacy sometimes shows, he was oblivious to the pressure, thinking he would overcome as all great kings do. This is where history isn't as clear as we'd like it. On the one hand, some accounts show Ethelred to be a capable leader. However, there are Some reports, coupled with the posthumous pun of a nickname that paints him in a negative light, which will soon be revealed. The facts of the matter are this. One of the largest invasion fleets the island had seen in some years, certainly since Ethelred had wrested the crown from his half-brother, but that's a different story altogether, was spotted off the coast. It was likely, but not confirmed by historical records at this time, at the time of this recording, that the chieftain who led this force of raiders was a man named Olaf Tryggvason, the future king of Norway. Over the next 75 years or so, England will be somewhat of an epicenter for the evolution of Europe, or better said, those areas around the North Sea, which includes Nor- Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the north part of the Holy Roman Empire, Normandy, England, 
and the kingdoms of Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. It would be a weather vane hinting at what's to come, from the expansion of Christianity to the farthest reaches of the European landmass, to the gradual consolidation of lands that will start to resemble nations we know today, what happens in 991 in a small village in Essex on the coast of the North Sea seems to be a kickoff of things to come. As the researcher, writer, and host of this podcast, I hope to construct a narrative of European history that, frankly, I never received growing up. It seems beyond the pale to think of my formal education resembling Swiss cheese in terms of where America's place is in the larger world. What drives this podcast is a desire to fill in those gaps and to tell a more complete story of the world I live in today, and to return to the essential narrative structure when studying history. Data and graphs and records of the most mundane sort, yeah, they're all extremely important, but being married to someone who has never enjoyed learning about history, though I hardly share her sentiment, I can completely understand. History's taught like an almanac, a timeline of events with an insufferable focus on what I've heard called great man history. For instance, your teacher might have told you something like, quote, King Ethelred of England faced down Olaf Tryggvason outside of the village of Malden in 991. The Vikings won. Okay, I can see the value in that, but the nuance missing is shameful. King Ethelred, first of all, was nowhere near Malden. Second, we're not exactly sure it was Olaf Tryggvason who attacked Folkestone and Malden. Third, it's written as a Viking win, but there's a fairly large asterisk by that fact. And finally, what's missing most is the thing that people connect with the easiest. It's narrative. History's more than a collection of facts and figures. History's a story. It's our story. Stories are complex vehicles. Stories allow for three crucial factors to every topic we study. Nuance, inquiry, context. This is what I want to bring to this podcast retelling of the late Middle Ages, the time that the Dark Ages begin to show the flickers and sparks of enlightenment, the time when national borders begin to look familiar to us today, the time that directly sets up the chess pieces for the global economic spin of the wheel that expands the quote-unquote known world to the other side of the planet. See, nuance allows the listener to come to his or her own conclusions. You know, King Ethelred, a Christian, the indisputable leader of the combined Anglo-Saxon peoples, and now in agreement with those former marauding Norsemen in Normandy, is this the victim of this story? Ethelred certainly had his fair share of controversies, which began with the mysterious death of his brother, the King of England, back in, nine, in the 970s. Or Olaf Tryggvason, a pagan a pegging Viking, the leader of a roving band of berserkers who ransacked villages and did unspeakable things to the people who lived there. The captain of the largest longboat in history, is, is he the one to root for here? Inquiry. See, inquiry invites the oft-overlooked, in primary education circles anyway, yet critical question in the understanding of history. Why? Why Malden? Why Ethelred? Why Trigvison? Why did this particular, and largely forgettable, skirmish in southeastern England have the subtle, though lingering impact it did on history? See, context reveals how each person and event fits into the larger schemes and structures in which they or it finds themselves 
or itself in. What did Europe look like in the late 10th century, and how did that impact the Battle of Malden specifically? What were the Vikings seeking to gain by leaving their own homelands and raiding England's? Of course, King Ethelred, staring down the barrel of the proverbially anachronistic Viking canon, knew of the larger world. He was, in fact, Christian, unlike his Danish and Scandinavian neighbors. See, in 991, he knew of the neighbors in close proximity to him, I'm sure. He knew of the cowering king of the Welsh, Merodud Aboain, who seemed to spend whatever it took to keep the Vikings quelled, though everyone knew they always would come back. Word from across the sea would have thrown caution his way about the first high king of Ireland, King Maël Sheshnel Macdumnall, whose on-again, off-again reign would resemble Ethelred's own over the next couple decades. Also on the Emerald Isle, Aid Macdumnall Uenil of the Kingdom of Eilek, Cathal Mac Conkbar Mac Teg of Connachtka, Doncad Macdumnall, Clan of Leinster, the great Brian Boru of Munster, Tag Moru, Ua Calais of Uimain, and Eocad Mac Ardgal of Ulster, all jockeyed for power. Ethelred, from his seat of power in Mercia in the center of England, would have most certainly have had emissaries from the massive and historically prominent Holy Roman Empire, led at the time by King Otto III, or Otto the Great, as historians have named him. However, since he was three, when he was crowned a series of regents, were running the affairs of state. Theophanu and Adelaide were the regents in 991. Henry II, or Henry the Quarrelsome, was the Duke of Bavaria. Boleslaus the Pious was Duke of Bohemia. Conrad I was King of Burgundy. This was the time in 991 when the first recorded political entity of what would become the nation of Poland appeared in the history books. This emerging power would have an impact during this time, led by the charismatic Mieszko I, who saw his father's vision for his people of regional influence and power by sealing bonds with surrounding powers through both marriage as well as Christian conversion. Within the year, his son Boleslav I would continue this. In just six years from 991, Ethelred would hear word of future Saint King Stephen I becoming Hungary's first king. As for people across the Mediterranean and into the Far East, the Khazar Khaganate made of Turkish Christians. The Fatimid Caliphate held Egypt and Sicily under Muslim rule. The powerful Abbasid Caliphate made Baghdad into the Alexandria of the Muslim world. And Basil II of the Eastern Roman Empire, called the Byzantine Empire long after its collapse, would have earned the nickname the Bulgar Slayer by dealing a mortal blow to the powerful Bulgarian Empire to its northwest. In the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day Spain and Portugal, the Umayyad Caliphate would earn the nickname the Cordoba Caliphate by creating a Muslim city focused on the sciences as well as promoting surprisingly liberal policies for all, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim people alike. Pope John XV would hold sway for another four years until Gregory I takes over, the Papal States, on the Italian peninsula centered on Rome itself. The Republic of Venice has tried its hand at, dare I say, a more democratic approach to governorship, but let's not kid ourselves here. It was largely oligarchic rule. But they're slowly growing their flavor of empire throughout the Adriatic Sea and holding strong against the Byzantines and the Croats in the area. 
and Vladimir the Great was Grand Prince and ruler of the soon-to-be-very-influential Kievan Rus in modern-day Russia and Ukraine. There are so many on this list that Ethelred may never have heard of, even if he'd known of their lands and kingdoms. And let me just say, this is hardly a comprehensive list, too, as I skipped over the myriad of warlords, chieftains, dukes, doges, margraves, counts, princes, queens, generals, and other kings who are all jockeying for position throughout the Western world. However, Ethelred was living in a fantastically diverse and ever-changing Europe. Every one of these leaders mentioned would have collectively monumental impacts on the future of not only their kingdom or duchy or march or republic or empire, but on the continent as a whole, all the way up to the present day. Modern Europe traces its roots, at least in its most obvious sense, to this time period. Truthfully, there's no single event or year or even century that marks that turning point from pre-modern to modern, just as there was nothing of the sort that transitioned from the classical period to those of the Dark Ages. Europe has been gradually evolving for millennia, and however, one can see the change when looked at from a thousand years distance, which is my hope for this podcast. I personally find gaping holes in my understanding of the time period between the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the mid-400s to exactly 1492, the year in which, for the American primary student, quote-unquote, history begins. I seek to upend this assumption that the Dark Ages through the Renaissance are viewed as my home state in the United States, deep in the heart of the continent, is viewed. The term used for us is flyover states, and connotes a sense of, sure, there are people down there living lives, farming, doing business, but in the larger view of the world, eh, it doesn't altogether amount to much in the grand scheme of things. At first, I sought to remedy this by reading about great events through the Middle Ages. Again, a period I was inadvertently trained to overlook for lack of importance. I read all about the fall of Constantinople, which led me to the Ottomans. This, in turn, led me to the Caliphates, and in my reading I would hear names like Avicenna and Averroes and St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. I thought, there's an entire library full of information about the Middle Ages I had been unaware of. I felt, jokingly, that I'd discovered a whole new epoch of history that nobody really knew about. Eureka! You know? What could I do with this information, though? Everyone needs to know this stuff, is what I decided. I'm just going to do a podcast, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the story. Certainly, my American-centric view of the world isn't so naive as to think that the rest of the world overlooked these periods, so I started reading original texts to get the full story, and not just those filtered interpretations. For every Dan Jones book, which I enjoy, I would compliment it with a venerable bead, for instance. To be sure, I'm finding the Middle Ages an incredibly complex time period, despite what some history books might say. The sheer number of moving parts, the people, the armies, the missionaries and their conversions, the land grabs, the treaties, the agreements, uh, the economic experiments, I, it's staggering. And there's no doubt that I will fail to explain it all. My purpose in this podcast is to, again, narrate. Offer a retelling of its most important parts 
in a compelling and entertaining and informational way. History is our story, and it is all worth telling. Yes, even the parts that are unsettling or downright jarring. I promise I will discuss tough subjects that today's sensibilities would certainly find abhorrent. However, I will try my best to keep the language as clean as possible so as to reach as wide an audience as I can. Better to leave out a word than to alienate an entire group of listeners and learners. There is also a certainty of me completely leaving out a group's history. This is a matter of narrative flow more than a matter of bias. I enjoy learning about all peoples even though I do not share certain traditions, values, or norms with them. I guess what I'm trying to say is that though I really appreciate podcasts like Peter Adamson's Philosophy Without Any Gaps, I simply cannot fathom tying in every single minuscule person of note or event throughout the Middle Ages in any interesting way. The subject matter simply doesn't hold up in my opinion. No, I can't. I can only strive to create a podcast that tells an interesting story for fans of history and storytelling. Only hoping that I can reach the quality of Mike Duncan's work on the history of Rome and his revolutions. While not neglecting the thinkers of the day who quite literally authored the medieval mind. Stephen West's Philosophize This comes to mind. And again, narration. History should not simply be reduced to bullet points. I'm not teaching to a test here, per se. I'm seeking to tell a story, and my favorite stories are not only vastly descriptive in world-building, but also rich in characterization. I want to care. History's hard for those who find it hard to care, but these same people will binge-watch a fantasy epic because of the characters, crying over them and thinking about them for years afterward. Why can this not be the same for our ancestors' stories? Like, say, King Ethelred, who shadily usurped the throne from his popular brother, only to be labeled the unready by later chroniclers. Was this fair? Was he, in fact, inept? Or did he face a daunting period in Anglo-Saxon history in which outside forces were simply too much for him and his kingdom to stand against? Did he not lie in bed at night, despairing over the consequences of his actions? Was he aware what his legacy would be? And if so, was he willing to accept it as what he did, in his opinion, the best for his kingdom? Would you have done the same? To me, the same reason we learn history is the exact same reason we read fiction, to learn about ourselves. We can learn from a violent raider like Olaf Tryggvason, for instance. Well, for starters, how did he get this way? Was every Viking man violent simply by being Viking? Vikings were an interesting bunch, for sure. On one hand, for a full millennia, they were seen as nasty, hairy, brutish pagans who were bloodthirsty and saw no value in human life. They pillaged, they murdered, they did the unspeakable to the most vulnerable, they carted off victims to be enslaved. Make no mistake, though a simplified version of them, there's a lot of truth in that description, but it was hardly a full picture of the typical Viking. Though they rarely made too many friends where they went, the age-old stereotype is quickly becoming, well, outdated. Over the last several decades, due to archaeologists doing their due diligence with newly discovered sources, the accepted history of Vikings is, is not being apologetic for their actions, but it is being adjusted for the nuance they deserve. Scandinavians had a rich cultural texture to them, 
complete with compelling mythological stories about elves, giants, gods, goddesses, monsters, and the end of a world that rivaled all those other apocalypses told around fires and in holy buildings around the world. They were farmers and fishermen, largely. Viking settlements were just that, settlements. In fact, England had many of these settlements, predominantly in the north and modern-day Scotland. They traded with their Anglo-Saxon, Welsh, Irish, and Pict neighbors. Their settlements were places to raise families and participate in festivals and rituals, and they helped out their community members in need. In fact, the number of misleading representations continues to pile up on these people. For instance, they never wore helmets with horns on them. It was a mistake made by a later, late mid, it was a mistake made by a late Middle Ages monk in one of the historical accounts written about them, and not until decades after the event. And speaking of those who wrote about the Vikings, they consequently were the people who were just raided. They say that history is written by the victors, but unfortunately for the Scandinavians, that's not the case. Since, as we've learned, they rarely wrote down anything, those whom they affected wrote their history for them. And it's pretty safe to say that what was written wasn't painting them in a very good light. Granted, any kind of raider, especially one who suddenly appears spanning the entire horizon at the break of dawn and sets your town ablaze, steals your valuables, drives a sword through your husband's throat, and carried off women, children, and able-bodied young men to become slaves— are certainly up for being called barbaric at best. But we also have to consider again who was writing down these accounts. The accounts focus mainly on these horrible raids that left a charred wound not only on the lands they visited, but also on the very hearts of the cultures and communities they raided. As a mere example of this larger cultural group of Scandinavians, Olaf Tryggvason, the man who quite possibly finds himself leading 90 ships full of raiders, on Northy Island, just a mile east of the village of Malden in 991, he has a life story shrouded in the typical Viking mystery most of them have. One early version states he was either born in the Orkney Islands in the far north of Scotland, or he was carried there at a very early age by his mother, who was fleeing from her husband's murderers. This version says that he, like Ethelred, was born around the mid-960s, and with royal blood in his veins. But when compared to later stories of Olaf's childhood, they divert sharply from these earlier accounts. We still see his mother evading her husband's murderers, employed by the new king of Norway, Harold Greycloak, who had just usurped the throne of Hakan the Good in the early 960s. But instead of Olaf making his way to the Orkney Islands, this later version's Olaf ends up in Kievan Rus territory, an area in what is now Eastern Europe, much of which would evolve into Russia in the next few centuries. This is quite a shocking diversion from earlier versions, to say the least, which casts doubt on their valid validity. To entertain these later versions, however, which I have to admit are compelling to entertain, we find a very young Olaf with a more royal connection than the earlier versions, as mentioned. An important narrative for great leaders at that time that offered a sense of legitimacy to their legacy of greatness. Olaf's supposed uncle Sigurd held allegiance to the King Voldemort of Novgorod, who also held the title of Prince of the Kievan Rus, or as history has now recorded him, Vladimir I, 
or Vladimir the Great. And well, we'll hold off for a moment on Sigurd. This saga shows a violent past, complete with Olaf's ship, failing to make it to their destination when he was young, having been boarded by another group of Vikings. Olaf gets sold into slavery, and one day, maybe a year later, in a market, he was asked who he was. Olaf, maybe five or six at the time, told him the story and who his father was, and it turns out that the man he was talking to was Sigurd, his uncle. Strange bit of luck, almost as if it were something you'd read and say, an account written later to bolster the claim to historical importance. The truth, it may never be known, I suppose. From gaining prominence in Novgorod as a highly respected military leader and a close friend of King Valdemar, over the coming years to an unexpected shunning by the king, his escape from Kiev, and his royal marriage to Queen Gera of Wendland in 982 in the forests of northern Germany, just south of Denmark. This crazily detailed saga of Olaf Tryggvason's life can unfortunately only be entertained as legend and not as truth. However, what we know is that Olaf Tryggvason somehow rose to be an influential Scandinavian leader who would, shortly after the Battle of Malden, ascend to the throne of Norway. Fortunately, history has left us with far more verifiable evidence of King Ethelred. Ethelred would mark a distinct point in the Anglo-Saxon history. In fact, the point he marks would be the beginning of the end of a good run of Anglo-Saxon rule in England. Like, forever. Ethelred wasn't a name in a thousand-year-old chronicle. He was a man in his story. Specifically, his ascension to the throne of England would be a mainstay in English ascendancy for centuries to come. Ethelred was born to King Edgar, the peaceful, and Elfthrift, his wife. However, Edgar's firstborn son, Edward, was actually thought to be an illegitimate son with the daughter of an English noble. When Edgar died, Edward was propped up as the new king at the age of 13 years old. Unfortunately, this young man's reign would only last three years or so. Edward was murdered at Corfe Castle in Dorset on March 18, 978, allowing Ethelred, age 12, to claim the throne with his supporters passionately claiming that Edward was not a legitimate heir. Ethelred will remain in power for a few decades and will sit on the throne during, as mentioned, one of the major bends in early English history, a bend that would mark a lasting interest in the English islands by mainland Europe. Much of Ethelred's criticisms come from this, particular, this peculiar ascendancy, and it's worth noting that his nickname, the Unready, wasn't used for another 100 years. There is, so far discovered, no evidence of his contemporaries referring to him in that light, It most likely was attributed to him after history has had its way with his reign, which, as we'll see, his reign will usher in a new lasting era in English history. As Olaf Tryggvason was manning the guard under King Voldemar, Ethelred was just getting his feet wet in the arena of English politics. At only 12 or 13, Ethelred relied on his mother to help run the affairs of the state until he was old enough. And in early England in the 980s, This threshold for a young monarch was age 15, called majority. The reins were handed over just as the peace that Ethelred's father had started, well, the peace started to wane. 
A series of minor coastal raids were occurring by Danish Vikings in England, in places like Cornwall, Dorset, and Cheshire. Slowly ebbing away at the reclamation of Dane law, established a few days or a few decades earlier by his father, King Edgar. See, King Edgar did a masterful job taking back areas of the English mainland that were under Dane law, a term simply meant to distinguish between those lands under Danish control and those not under Danish control. These preliminary raids in the early 980s wouldn't have made such a huge, huge impact on England, but they would mark Ethelred's reign as one in direct opposition to the kingdom of Denmark, as well as open the door to diplomatic relations, sometimes suspect and sometimes amiable enough, with Normandy across the English Channel. This relationship with Normandy would come to a monumental head within the century. Tensions between Ethelred's court and the Norman court quickly became strained due to Richard I of Normandy's permission to Danish Vikings to use Norman coastal settlements as respites before crossing and raiding English towns. These tensions would herald the Pope's insistence of peace, which was reached in Rouen in 991, but it might have come a smidge too late. One account shows Olaf Tryggvason deeply entrenched in the court of Dublin during the 980s, and another account has him sailing through the channel between England and the mainland during that time as well. There's no source I have personally found that confirms this, but it can be, it can be considered a possibility that it was, in fact, Olaf Tryggvason who led the series of attacks on England with the passing consent of Richard I of Normandy to use his ports as safe havens. We cannot forget that the Normans in northern France were originally settled by, quote, Norse men centuries before, so though it may not be official at times, we can assume a genetic understanding between Normandy and other Scandinavian nations existed. The one piece of evidence that lends this credit is that the records called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, an account begun under Ethelred's ancestor, Alfred the Great, two centuries before, and periodically updated for another three or four centuries by various authors. See, this claims that an Olaf was passing through the English Channel in the early 990s with a band of Vikings. Otherwise, if this is untrue, we really have no idea who the Viking leader was who led these raids. But after, six or, after a six or seven year break through the 980s, the raids picked back up in 991, beginning again in Folkestone, along the southern coast of England, directly across from Normandy. Folkestone suffered a terrible attack, among other small communities in the area. Then, at the mouth of the River Blackwater in Essex, a fairly large Danish contingent of 90 ships and up to 4,000 battle-hardened men made landfall at a small island just yards from the English mainland. This was Northy Island, and there was a naturally raised path of earth between the waves that, depending on the ebb and flow of the tide, one could walk across without much worry of being swept away. One mile to the west, the peaceful town of Malden was bracing for the worst. However, the eldermen, or noble, of Essex, having heard of attacks on the southern coast and followed the reported paths of the raiders arriving just before the Viking war party, they pitched camp on the shores overlooking Northy Island. It was not a terribly large militia of men, then called a ferd, consisting mainly of a couple thousand locals collected along the way to Malden, but this militia was led by a dominant figure, the 60-plus-year-old, 6-foot-9-inch Britnoth, 
along with his smaller force, or comitatus, of highly trained and very loyal proto-knights, as the formal knight, as we know it, didn't quite exist yet. The odds were not in Britnoth's favor. The Vikings, well, were Vikings after all. They were battle-hardened and ready for just another in a series of raids on a defenseless English town. When we pick up this story next week, let's begin with this image. It's probably a bit of on the romantic side of things, but let's humor the storyteller anyway here. Two leaders of men staring across a potential battlefield at one another as the men behind them are readying for the bloodshed that awaits, but history has a way of lending freedom to the imagination. This podcast is a celebration of this, and when we pick this story back up, we will enter into the carnage of a typical Viking engagement when the defenders decide to rise up. We will also dissect the outcomes of this battle in 991 and how England, and in effect all of Western civilization, will be affected by what would become known as the Battle of Malden.